Welcome to Faint of Heart, a podcast about the role of arts and philanthropy in moments of crisis. I'm Johanna Bayana. I'm Eva Heinstein. My name is Brooke Wages. And I'm Camille Washington. And we are turning to this topic as the coronavirus pandemic takes lives and livelihoods around the world. As people socially distance and mourn losses, big and small, many are finding joy, connection, and comfort through the arts. The value of arts and society is being felt in new, deeper ways. But artists have always had a unique ability to carry powerful messages that mobilize action and offer healing. During the AIDS pandemic, art helped bring much needed attention to a disease that was willfully ignored by a neglectful government. Over the last two months, organizers and foundations have launched numerous relief funds to support arts nonprofits and individual artists suffering from the impacts of COVID-19. This response is much different than the 2008 financial crisis, when many private donors and government agencies turned away from arts organizations to support more, quote unquote, essential needs. Today, we're joined by Tim McCarthy, a scholar, activist, and Harvard faculty member, Michal Rubin, Vice President of Development at the Cambridge Community Foundation, Ashley Gordon, violist and co-founder of Castle of Our Skins, and violist Tanya Kalmanovich, Associate Professor at the New School and faculty at the New England Conservatory. Together with them, we'll explore key questions. What value does society place on the arts during crises? And how does this shape philanthropic responses? And what lessons about resilience, funding, and survival does the arts community teach the philanthropic sector, and all of us, as we imagine and create new normals post-COVID-19? Let's get into it, starting with Tim McCarthy. My name is Timothy Patrick McCarthy, and I'm a faculty member at Harvard University, where I have a joint appointment at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the Graduate School of Education, and I also teach in Harvard College and at Harvard Business School. And so my work uh, focuses on the relationship between politics and social movements, art and social justice, and I do a lot of things out in the world that relate to all of those areas of intellectual and political and personal concern. We asked Dr. McCarthy to reflect on the crises that he has seen, both as a historian and firsthand as an activist, as well as the things that art can offer us during times of rupture and disequilibrium, like the moment that we're facing right now. So I always say, you know, echoing my my friend uh, Brian Stevenson, who says that we have to get proximate to whatever it is that we are trying to engage, deal with, fix, uh, reimagine. You know, and for Brian, that's, of course, racial injustice and the impoverishment of our imagination around community with respect to white supremacy and the persistence of anti-Black and other forms of racism in society. And so his work as an anti-death penalty lawyer and as a civil rights crusader and Black freedom fighter um, is oriented to that. But I think that idea of getting proximate to injustice or getting proximate to pain is something that is a lesson for us to heed in all of these different moments. And I I think back to the, the AIDS crisis, another pandemic from a virus 
earlier in our history and certainly still today is a, a proud problem and challenge in so many places. But I grew up and came of age during the AIDS crisis. And I remember, you know, all those years of neglect, governmental neglect, medical and scientific neglect, religious neglect, literally every power broker and stakeholder in an institution and society abdicated their responsibility to treat the AIDS crisis when it first emerged in the early 1980s and then um, only got worse and worse and worse for um, so many years. So many people died as a result of that inaction. And yet at the same time, that was a period where the LGBTQ community came together and forged its own robust institutions like the gay men's health crisis and um, and Fenway and the community center in New York and in other cities across the country ACT UP and other kinds of AIDS activist organizations that did so much to pressure all of those institutions that had been neglectful into doing something. And one of the things, and this relates back to my point about getting proximate, that the people who were really the leaders during the AIDS crisis for the first two decades of the AIDS crisis, especially in the United States, were people who were HIV positive themselves, people who were dying of AIDS themselves, people who were um, lovers of those people, people who were the caretakers of those people, the nurses of the in the early AIDS crisis were other queer people who were trying to help people die with dignity and to make sure that their lives were not silenced by this virus and this disease. And and it were the it was those AIDS activists themselves who were the first to get people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, who are now on the Corona uh, Response Task Force for this current presidential administration, to take this this to take seriously those who were most vulnerable to the disease itself, who were most proximate to all of that pain and suffering, but also to these models of resilience and persistence and power that were that were coming out of the community in 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 you know from the grassroots in an organic sense and i think that that's what artists can do artists are often closest right to the human condition in all of its manifestations and that's why art is so powerful that is why the affective impact of art the way that art is able to articulate that cacophony and chaos of emotions, the affective dimensions of our lives um, that have nothing to do with, with research in a scientific sense or spreadsheets in a policy sense or an economic sense. Um, they're close to that and they can articulate that. And so for me, artists are absolutely central to this and they are leaders in this time that I often look to the artists and the activists as the truth tellers in any given moment, in any given society, particularly in times of crisis. And even though, or especially because, art is often devalued, generally speaking, in all times, and in times like these where you have to be very, um, oftentimes very clear about your, your immediate priorities and art may fall off that priority list, the artists are still working, they're still creating, they're still reimagining, they're still telling the truth about all of those things that are part of the human condition that people in power in other realms, in politics and policy, in economics and business, even in science and medicine, often miss. Let's turn now to the funder side of things and have a conversation with Michal Rubin, 
My name is Michal Rubin, and I serve as Vice President of Development at the Cambridge Community Foundation. Michal spoke with us about the ways her organization is responding to COVID-19, as well as her hopes for what philanthropy will learn from this moment moving forward. It's the traditional role of a community foundation to fund nonprofits. Our fund is also funding nonprofits. We funded 15 nonprofits so far from the fund. And those are nonprofits that employ and or train artists. So people who are paying the salaries of current artists and or training the next generation of artists. And they're eligible for grants of up to $5,000 each. That said, the culture of an artist going from, you know, one event to another event, one performing venue to another performing venue, you know, we were just kind of painfully aware that the only way to catch that need is to put money in people's hands. And we have a parallel effort to the Cambridge Artist Relief Fund. We have the Cambridge COVID-19 Relief Fund, uh, which is an emergency fund, and it, it casts a broader, a wider net. And in that sense, too, we understood that the most effective thing we could be doing is putting cash in people's hands. People have cash needs now, right now. And... The, the law actually supports this um, mode of operation. The IRS Disaster Relief Code enables charities like ours in response to disasters to give cash gifts to individuals. And I think that's kind of a recognition of, of the legal ground that we stand on and the reality that we face of in this kind of a situation, the most effective thing we could and should be doing is just giving people that money and letting them decide where it should go. And it's not much money. You know, the grants are up to $1,000, but it's something, you know, it's something we could do. I would envision a zoom out conversation on what it might look like to support that sector more strongly. Now, that's kind of where we started, right? That was the idea of the Cultural Capital Fund. That event has been postponed for March 11th, 2021. You know, we're, we're looking forward to launching the fund then, to honoring the cultural visionaries who inspired the fund then. And I hope that the original goals of the fund are only solidified because you need support day in and day out. You need baselines. You need salaries, right? And you can't even start to have that conversation without funding mechanisms, right? You need to be able to promise somebody a fair living wage, right? And there needs to be money behind that. And so I do think that we can continue to play a role. Our model as a community foundation has been collective philanthropy always. And, you know, that means that when a lot of people believe in something, we can together make it happen. That's what's happening in the arts fund. I mean, this fund is about $240,000 large, and it's the result of collective philanthropy. You know, they're founding donors, and then they're a network for good $20 donors, and they go into the same pool, and together they do something really outstanding. And that was also the idea of the cultural capital fund to create a pool. We were already having conversations with people with very different abilities, but the same sense of purpose. And so I hope that this magnifies that sense of purpose. And then when we have the ability to kind of catch our breath and drill down to say, well, what do we need 
to support the kind of ecosystem that we want in a more stable, sustained way, right? Like the emergency funds are always going to be necessary. Unfortunately, I don't think you can look back at the history of any disaster that didn't require an emergency fund. But but can we be stronger because of it, I think is, is a worthy conversation. There will be a day, you know, hopefully in the foreseeable future where we pivot the conversation back to the cultural capital fund. And I think with the very same partners that we're working with right now, can we have that shared vision together with those shared resources to create a more stable environment for the arts? And I think leaning on these nonprofits that are just pillars in our community, like, can we give them the money (laughs) behind the love that clearly we've we all have, you know, I, I tune into so many nonprofit live streams on Instagram, on Facebook, you know, there's so much love there. Like, can we turn that into a solid pillar of support? Now that we know a little bit about how funders are thinking through supporting the arts sector during crises, how are small grassroots arts nonprofits holding up? Ashley Gordon is our source. My name is Ashley Gordon. I am a violist in Boston, uh, as well as artistic and executive director of Kessel of Our Skins, also a Boston-based a nonprofit arts organization focusing on the music of Black composers and Black history, Black culture, concerts, and uh, educational spaces. We spoke with Ashley about the impact of philanthropic dollars on small grassroots nonprofits like Castle of Our Skins and how those small nonprofits have responded to the current crisis. We also asked Ashley if the philanthropic sector learned any lasting lessons from our last global crisis, the 2008 recession. The philanthropic efforts that I'm seeing are recognizing that while we all have been impacted as as individuals and certainly as organizations, those that don't have endowments, those that don't have 30 people in their fundraising team uh, are potentially at the most most risk, right? And so the philanthropic dollars, from my perspective, from my blinders, what what I'm seeing are geared more towards those that are most at risk. Um, so I, I am seeing some equitably placed financial dollars, which is a sign of uh, being responsive, being responsible and being responsive. Castle of Our Skins has, has benefited from, perhaps from the 2008 recession, but, but other foundations saying we want to help and here is unrestricted operation funding that we'll give to you for the next three, four years. Or, or the Black Arts Future Fund, which was one of our first general operating um, grants that also had professional development, and New England Foundation, Boston Foundation, that also provides professional development in addition to dollars. So perhaps I um, and our organization are, are benefiting from the 2008 recession, which which maybe shifted mindsets in, in the philanthropic world. Uh, but what I can speak more on is as, as an artist and as a director, already having conversations with other executive directors and trying to even just hold space for one another. So if if there's an idea, you can you can call me as opposed to again being competitive versus collaborative and other arts organizations coming together on a Zoom and just talking about visioning a a futured space 
that is not a return to normalcy because normalcy didn't work, but a futured space that is led by and um, steered, you know, in, in how it's built by an arts sector. So those kind of conversations are happening now. Maybe they're also happening in the philanthropic side. I, I can't necessarily speak on that, but as as a director, those those are thoughts that are percolating. Conversation, hopefully leading to action, but some ideas, and certainly in, in terms of collaborating, but literally sharing resources where space is such a premium. Can we share a physical space? Can we share uh, human resources and have a, a grant writer for three organizations? Can we, can we form some kind of consortium uh, and have monthly share outs about best practices? And I did this study, I think you would benefit from it as opposed to this will only benefit me and, the, and my marketing efforts and my audience, et cetera. But really trying to create a ecosystem in which we can mutually benefit from and mutually enrich in with our work and seeing each other as being valuable across sectors. So it's not uh, flexible chamber ensembles that focus on cultural representation talking over here and you know theater groups talking over here who are focused on LGBTQIA or something like this, but everyone, everyone coming together. Again, artist initiated and small grassroots style as, as most movements right are, are started. What does that kind of support look like? What does it look like to put money directly into the hands of artists and makers? And perhaps even more importantly, there's this related question of who even gets to be part of that so-called artistic community in the first place? Tanya Kalmanovich has thoughts on this. My name is Tanya Kalmanovich. Um, I am an associate professor at the New School in New York City, a faculty member at the New England Conservatory in Boston, a musician, an ethnomusicologist, and an author. And I live in Brooklyn, New York. We asked Tanya how she thought philanthropy could respond to the specific needs and challenges for artists during COVID-19. We also talked with her about the ways in which artists themselves can contribute to post-COVID futures. If you're a 24-year-old jazz musician living in New York, sharing an apartment with three or four other people, you are stuck, you've lost your day job, you don't have any money, you're not going to be able to continue what it is that you came to the city to do. That's done. Right? You're going to end up moving back with your parents for God knows how long and, uh, you know, hoping for the best. Now, if you happen to come from an affluent family and they can afford to keep paying your rent, then you weren't living with four people anyway, right? So they're floating you, and whenever this comes through, you're going to make, like, really great COVID jazz. I mean, I understand that this experience is troubling for people, and people need to work through it in their own ways, so I don't mean to make fun of COVID jazz. I think about the, the consequences of, like, say, wiping out a generation of performers who are already, at least in, in this country, if you weren't coming from economic privilege or, you know, other structures of privilege, like geographic privilege, racial privilege, like forget about even getting a shared apartment in New York. If you're like a young black male musician, you know, that's not so easy. So, I mean, you have to think through it in, in, in those terms and then think, well, I mean, I have a friend who's built up a, a long-term business, um, 
teaching music lessons and jazz ensembles and stuff very successful over like 15 years. They just moved into a rental space in Midtown. Now they're be bankrupt like in another week. So seeing like whole like elements of the ecosystem just sort of like wiped out is troubling to me. Even like some of the more um the more preeminent organizations it's revealed how they're operating on really really slender reserves like 3 months and paying musicians salaries um keeping them employed making sure they have health insurance was never really a priority for them anyhow right so you see how like the the branding of success as an arts organization becomes like it was always like more the deal than it was like you know other ways of thinking about success like creating like stable resilient platforms for artists to do the work of art right early on in the in pandemic times plague times i compiled a google document with a bunch of resources for artists which i eventually stopped updating because other people stepped in and and kept better updated lists but most of those programs i hear from my friends are um so vastly oversubscribed they were wiped out within like the first day uh, i have a lot of friends who still haven't been able to get through the unemployment system haven't received their unemployment haven't received a stimulus check so from there it becomes really really clear like who has access to money and who doesn't you know there's also like like a whole kind of layer of a, a precarious middle class that's really in trouble right now more generally so i i don't think there's a lot of open conversation about that you know i i haven't like even talking to my colleagues in in meetings i haven't heard anyone ever openly express anxiety around their jobs being terminated but you know in general music conservatories tend to hire faculty on a contingent labor basis because the idea is is that like you know your faculty are so elite that they kind of float above the concerns of like economics because they're like great artists like angel wings you know they're just flapping around and like swimming in the ether um and so why why would you care about things like money you know similarly an organization like the BSO you know effectively subsidizes a lot of the instruction at a school like NEC so when you interrupt the BSO's primary activity which is to give concerts in symphony hall and then you end up having to furlough you know your your musicians and they're not salaried then it becomes a question of like well you know again if you bought your house and you own your house and you if you've been working in an orchestra for a long time and if you come from like a kind of a upper middle class family where you learned solid financial management skills you'll probably be able to pull through and at this point those are mostly the only kinds of people who play classical music anyhow but one other thing i would say is that when we talk about the arts we tend to still talk about a very limited set of art artistic practice so i think it would be interesting for people right now to look towards um the history of the role of music in the resilience of black communities in new orleans over like 450 years how did music serve as a convener for um education for social welfare programs for like these kind of webbed community-based um social support things because the system was never looking out for them in the first place there's like a huge need for like rigorous imagination and moral courage that's the need that i'm seeing that's our charge right our charge is you know patty smith's lyrics from 1988 are like you know she says like the people have the power 
to dream, to rule, to wrestle power from the fools. I mean, this is like a punk icon of the 1970s and 80s New York scene, right? Like these, I always tell students that all the operations manuals for everything have been written already and that they're all encoded inside songs and they're encoded in poetry. They're encoded in plays and books. And we just have to keep reading them again and again and we need to write them again and again. So I want to know what would it take to, to unsettle the ordinary to that degree? If we could use this as an opportunity to be more courageous and more imaginative in thinking through what the real value of the arts could be, then that would be great. But so far, what I hear a lot of is people saying, well, you know, whenever we get back online, you know, whenever we get back into, whenever we get to the, like that, that phrase, the new normal, which I despise, because the old normal was bad. And so I don't think I want anything normal, like old or new. Faints of Heart was written, produced, and edited by Johanna Bayena, Eva Heinstein, Brooke Wages, and Camille Washington. Music is courtesy of End the Lab Productions. You can hear more beats at endthelabproductions.beatstars.com. We'd like to thank Tim McCarthy, Michal Rubin, Ashley Gordon, and Tanya Kalmanovich for sharing their perspectives with us. You can learn more about them and their work in the show notes for this episode. Finally, we'd like to thank Dr. Megan Ming Francis, as well as our fellow students in DPI 367, Philanthropy and Social Movements, a course which posed the important question, will the revolution be funded? For all our sakes, let's hope that it will be. Thanks. Thanks.